Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 4th of May, 2016. I'm Benjamin Riley. I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about the role of queer issues in quote-unquote progressive political movements. Over the past week or so, a couple of articles have caught our attention, both of which in different ways critique attitudes within left-wing politics uh, towards views they consider conservative. One, an article by Emmett Renson on the website Vox, attacks what he calls the, quote, smug style on the American left, an attitude which he describes as, quote, a condescending defensive sneer toward any person or movement outside of its consensus, dressed up as a monopoly on reason. The other article is by Gay Alcorn, writing in The Guardian, about why the left should be concerned about political correctness, as concerned about political correctness as the right is. Interestingly, although they aren't the subjects, uh, aren't the article's subjects, sorry, queer topics feature prominently in both. Uh, Renson uses the story of Kim Davis, the Kentucky public servant who refused to issue same-sex marriage license, to illustrate how the left denies even ideology to those they disagree with. He says, quote, uh, Kim Davis was not only on the wrong side of the law, she was not even a subscriber to, to a religious ideology that had found itself at moral odds with American culture. Rather, she was a subscriber to nothing, a hateful bigot who did not even understand her own religion, unquote. Alcorn's article cites both left-wing opponents of quote-unquote transphobe Jermaine Greer, as well as responses to opinions against same-sex marriage, as examples of a desire by sections of the left to silence opposing views rather than refute them. As frequent critics of consensus left-wing politics, these articles got us thinking about the role queer issues play in the mainstream left, and what it might mean to explicitly... explicitly frame these views as ideological rather than simply as, quote, uh, facts, unquote. So I think a good place to start is to ask, Simon, are you able to recognise the kinds of attitudes these articles describe? And second, do you agree with the author's analyses? Uh, Yes. So the short answer is yes, I can recognise the kinds of attitudes these articles describe. And I think uh, not only do I recognise them, but I think that they are becoming almost the dominant attitudes of many in sort of um, quote-unquote mainstream left-wing politics. And I think for me, there's sort of two uh, different parts to this. Um, First is the assumption uh, that, uh, and this is what, um, sorry, Renson talks about, Emmett Renson talks about this idea of um, liberal smugness uh, and the idea that people who are left-wing or liberal are simply more intelligent or have greater access to the facts, quote-unquote, than their right-wing opponents. Um, So you can see this in a lot of different ways, but I think the best example, and this is not not technically related to uh, queer politics, which we're talking about, the best example of this is um, Donald Trump uh, and the reaction we see to Donald Trump. And that's that's what uh, Emmett Renson talks about primarily in their article. Um, But 
for example, I saw a really great quote from uh, someone recently that was posted on Facebook and shared around quite a lot that said something along the lines of, um, you know, our challenge is not only to defeat Donald Trump, but our challenge is to create a better education system to, um, to stop people being so ignorant, um, so which, which, which in turn leads to Donald Trump. You know, the idea that it was ignorance that was leading to Donald Trump and people just being blatantly stupid, and that's why they were voting for someone who was, um, you know, con convincing them that they, it's, that, that, that they should vote for him when, you know, they're being duped. And so I think you see this quite often, this sort of idea that we have facts on our side and that the people who don't have, don't have facts on their side and they're just stupid. Uh, and then you see, so that's the first part that I think is really dominant. And then the second element that I see um, that uh, I think is... Uh, becoming more prominent is a bit more what Gay Alcorn talks about in the sort of silencing of views that uh, don't ascribe to those to our ideologies or don't ascribe to the facts that we have. Uh, and this this runs across a whole range of different things. So uh, Gay Alcorn talks about the Jermaine Greer experience and uh, Gay Alcorn also, she also talks about... Um, Sounds like a theme park ride, the Jermaine Greer experience. <laughs> <laughs> but, I would, but I would ride. not go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, um, she also talks about the um, Stephen Fry recently and his comments on, on this whole issue. Um, but what you're seeing increasingly is a sort of a space that um, says if you don't agree with us, then you don't have the right to have a view. And that's particularly around uh, issues in relation to gender and sexuality. I think it's particularly prominent. Uh, and it's, it's becoming... I don't know how to describe it, but it's becoming almost this uh, this dominant narrative that uh, that we are right on these issues and that everybody else is just a bigot. Um, but what that misses and what that's, what the problem with that is it misses, it, it doesn't allow for a lot of nuance in that debate. Um, so if you challenge the ideas, um, even from a left-wing perspective, you are... Or, or, automatically silenced, you know, automatically shut out and told that you can't have that view because it is bigoted, whatever that means. And I think these two different elements, this sort of smugness and this silencing are clearly crossing over. And I think that's what some of these articles brought out that was really interesting, uh, that they, they're crossing over and it's becoming the situation of a, of a serious elitism within uh, mainstream, again, quote unquote, politics, uh, left-wing politics, uh, in which we are seen as people see them see themselves and see others as sort of pure, um, you know, right and pure and ba everything based in fact. And we, you know, we understand all of these things more than everybody else. And if you don't understand or if you say the wrong thing, you're wrong and you're shut out. Simple as that. And I think this is becoming a really dominant trend within left-wing politics. Mm. And so I think particularly that stuff around uh, education that you mentioned is so, it's so insidious because it just... Uh, you know, kind of deny, there is sort of no response to those critiques uh, because you can just come back at everything with, no, don't worry, you would agree with us if you just were kind of shown the world in the right way. And that's, um, I mean, that's an ideology that is kind of so all-encompassing. You, you kind of can't break free from that. You can't argue against it. Mm -hmm. um, it, it becomes not in any way about uh, competing views um, it's, it's about kind of, uh, you being dumb. You, well, yeah, exactly. And you have, I think, you know, in the, at least with the sort of when it's, when this stuff is framed in terms of kind of PC stuff or political correctness, it's, uh, I guess it's perhaps more transparent. 
um, the kind of silencing of views at least is is framed as a silencing. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the uh, the stuff uh, in the the Vox article, I'm going to keep forgetting the author's name, Emmett Renson, um, that Renson talks about is is um, it kind of goes beyond silencing. It's 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 the denial that even those views are valid in any way. Mm-hmm. It's not. It kind of refuses to acknowledge that um, a worldview that produces uh, a homophobia, for example, is even a worldview. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important, I guess, to point out, and something that, that I want to talk about uh, at this point in time is that these sorts of attitudes, in my mind, have both very classist and I think often very racist undertones. Uh, and there's a couple of good instances of that. So the so the one that I talked about before with the Donald Trump education stuff, that we just need to create a better education system because it's the education system that's creating people to be so intolerant to, to, to vote for Donald Trump. And there's a real classist undertone to that, that it's hmm. the dumb working class who are being duped into this. And I think you see that across uh, in Australian politics too. So good examples of that are outrage at the Daily Telegraph and the the Murdoch Press, you know, and their... their, their um, their headlines, you know, the Daily Telegraph's headlines in the lead up to election campaigns and the idea that um, the working class are going to just be duped by these headlines to be told who they're going to vote for, that Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch tells them who to vote for and that's, that's you know, the way it is. Uh, and people are dumb enough to believe that and that's extraordinarily classist approach. Um, I think you also see um, quite a bit of racism that plays into that. Uh, and so going back to the US... Uh, and sort of on the opposite side of the political spectrum, um, there's been a lot of discussion, for example, about why Hillary Clinton has received such a um, a high uh, vote within the black community in the United States, and that's been a, a key constituency for her to mm. for her to win that election. And a lot of the response you've seen from people who support well, and Bernie particularly Sanders, why why Bernie Sanders has not, you know. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of the response you've seen from people from Bernie people Bernie Sanders supporters, not from Bernie Sanders himself, but uh, from a lot of his supporters that I've read, has been very much like, well, if the black people just understood that Bernie Sanders was better for him, better better for them, then they would clearly vote for him. There's no, there's just you know they just need to be educated on on why he's so much better, and that's that's you know, and then they'll vote for him. Uh, not taking into account the potential ideologies or beliefs that these people have, they're just, you know, not smart enough to understand why Bernie is better. And that, I think, uh, is something that continues over over again. Uh, and it's quite prevalent in the United States. I think you see it a little bit less in Australia, but uh, it's quite prevalent in the United States. And so you have this, both of these approaches have a very, in my view, classist and often very racist undertone to them. Mm, I mean, it's it's like this kind of, you know, nested babushka dolls of like, you know, assumed ignorance from other people. Because I think mm. I was thinking about about it in terms of um, the PC stuff, and I guess particularly how that intersects with uh, identity politics. You know, I, I think mm. this kind of silencing um, of views is often framed in terms of uh, who is and isn't allowed to say stuff based on their kind of identity category. Um, yep. which is a, a framework that allows essentially for in- infinite um, uh, exclusion of views because you can always kind of find someone who's, who's you know, quote-unquote more oppressed or fits into more kind of oppressed categories than, than the last person. But, I mean, it's, it, you know, you talk about uh, classism and, and 
racism uh in terms of um denying people the agency to to believe in things that we don't agree with one of the critics often ma- one of the criticisms rather often made by people who uh might be perceived as um pc i guess and this is a, a, a critique often made of of marxists um actually and and people who are kind of anti-capitalist uh critics um is that these views these kinds of uh the kinds of views i guess that you and i might espouse uh, are also a kind of, you know, in some ways, a, a function of classism and, and racism. That the people who um, are uh, railing against um, PC culture or a silencing of views are people who are simply not harmed by those views that are being silenced. And I kind of don't know sometimes what to do with that, particularly as a kind of white, gay, fairly privileged uh, man. Um, you know, when I, when I kind of do have issues with this, but, but recognize that all the people that I often feel like I'm in opposition to are people who are in very, very different circumstances to myself. Is that something that you've experienced, Simon? Yeah, it it is something I've experienced. Uh, and it's, it's a really tough one to think about. And I, I think I've told you this story before about the, uh, experience I had in Sydney, uh, where this, this, this issue came up really strongly. And I went to a conference in Sydney, uh, called, um, Queer Provocations. And it was really, really good. But what you ended up having in this group was people who had really strong identity politics on one side and a whole bunch of Marxists on the other side in one conference, uh, and created these exact tensions that, that occurred. Uh, and the ones that you were talking about just there. And, and one example uh, was I went uh, to a session on um, trans politics, um, transgender politics, and what the, what the presenters who were two trans people um, uh, uh, described as the, the trans tipping point or the sort of explosion of transgender issues onto, onto the mainstream um, media and debate and discussion and what's, how that's happened over the past few years. Uh, and they quite eloquently, in my opinion, described sort of um, a whole bunch of class analysis around that and, and about how trans people are being incorporated into a um, into the capitalist system and all of that sort of stuff. But we don't need to go into the details of that because that's not the point of the story. Um, the point of the story was that to do so, they used an example of a, uh, a woman in the United States who was a black woman who was had set up a company um, that... Um, trained trans people in um, info technology um, skills uh, and then uh, trained them up, gave them internships in these skills and then helped them find jobs in big businesses. Uh, and they made a critique of this of this sort of approach and sort of a critique uh, that I thought was really interesting. But again, I don't need to go into the critique because that's, that's not the, the point of the story. Um, the point of the story was that partway through or towards the end, um, a, someone got up, a, a, someone who, uh, a black woman got up and, um, and had a go at them for critiquing a black woman and, and uh, sort of said, you know, this is, uh, you know, you're attacking our, you're attacking our people. Why are you attacking, you know, a black woman when, you know, she would have gone through so much of this sort of stuff before. And what it highlighted was the real conflict there, where the the, the speakers were kind of shocked, and you could see they were extremely uncomfortable. Uh, and at the time, had you know, not um, it, obviously, I think it was not something that you know when they were figuring out this presentation that they'd thought of. Um, and I was really critical of that attack on them, but at the same time, 
you know, there's a discussion there about the sort of level of trauma that people go through and at what point does more and more attacks end up becoming so traumatic that it does re result in such pain that, you know, you want to fight it, fight back against it, you know, and you and, and that's how these sorts of movements end up coming about, where you have people saying, you know, they can't, people can't say these things or the no platforming campaigning which happens in the uk quite a bit where people say you know you can't say these things because it's creating more trauma i think it's really difficult um but for myself i guess i, I land on the stage where on the, on the page where it's sort of um you know increasing speech and and debate is really important in these sorts of areas and what we have to do and the, and the fight is about fighting the trauma that people are feeling over these issues, not 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 the feeling of themselves, but the the actual trauma that the, the people have suffered, uh, and I don't think we do so by um, by silencing discussion. I think we need to fight that sort of physical trauma, but whether it's actual physical, like people being beat up, or the sort of material trauma that people are facing, that is a harder task. And I think we're going down the sort of more cultural, dis, you know, sort of focus where it's about speech and all those things, sorts of things. But I don't think silencing people is going to end up stopping that trauma that people are feeling in the first place. Mm. That's a long sort of story anecdote, but I thought, you know, I thought it was relevant to this. No, I agree. I mean, and it's kind of interesting that uh, the these two sort of very different um, motivations, I guess, for, for shutting down debate and, and silencing debate and, and denying the validity of, of different views come from kind of very different places. When I read these two pieces, it, it, it took me a little while to to, I guess, figure out in my head exactly why they felt so similar to me and, 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 and evidence of perhaps the same thing. Uh, even though, yeah, on the one hand, you've got these people kind of arguing about uh, trauma and, and the kind of no platforming and, and trigger warnings and all the discussions that, that's happened around that. And then people, the, the sort of smugness stuff that um, I've got in his name again, Emmett Renson talks about <laughs> in the Vox article, uh, that's very much, it, you know, it's it's also a, a silencing, but motivated by the assumption of um, correctness, you know, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. a particular viewpoint. And it's it just, it seems like, you know, regardless of the the two different motivations for it, the product is the same, which is which is a, a, a movement that, uh, to some degree, sees itself as as um, uh, on the same side, I guess, being progressivism or, or left wing politics or, or whatever you want to call it, but um, is you know through these different mechanisms shutting down what the parameters of any political debate can be, and that just seems to me to um, really just kind of limit what any kind of achievable. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Outcomes can be from, from such a movement. You were talking a little bit earlier about the role that identity politics plays in all of this. And over the course of us talking here, I've been thinking about how these two concepts really connect. The idea of this sort of um, silencing discussion around the sort of no platforming, etc., and the smugness that connects, uh, and the smugness that uh, Emmett Renson, I'm going to forget his name as well, uh, or their name, um, continues to talk about. And what I think is interesting is I think that the, the natural conclusion of identity politics has always been the creation of purer and purer identities that you are the that almost the more oppressed you are the more pure you are and the more um, right you have to speak and naturally that's a reaction to a lot of people who are oppressed not having this capacity to speak in society and so their voice being given a stronger um, a stronger role. But this then intersects with a part of left-wing politics that is becoming, I guess, uh, this idea of more objective or more fact-based or science-based left-wing politics. And that's um, what Emmett, Re Emmett Renson talks about um, in terms of this sort of smug approach that is based on uh, the idea of education and the idea of class that, you know, you have to have facts on your side. And these two things are now interlinking, I think, in that you have the idea of you have to be a pure identity who has facts on their sides and that is the person who can speak and that person is generally uh, can end up being sort of some form of middle class person who is intelligent but then also you know is some sort of queer and I think this is where queer comes into this quite often is some sort of queer person who is intelligent and they are the people that sort of are the epitome of great left-wing politics at this point in time. Naturally there's some contradictions in there as well because you talk about uh, we talk about, um, you know, the the right to uh, so, uh, sort of minority issues in particular as a big focus. And I, we talked a little bit about the racism that occurs uh, in, um, in the United States, for example, around these sorts of issues. And what you're seeing is that when this sort of identity stuff counteract, uh, sort of um, crosses over with this class um, elitist type stuff, you're seeing some parts of that being pushed aside. So people who, uh, so white middle-class Americans who are who are performing this sort of racism against non-Bernie supporters. Um, and so it's a really interesting um, sort of cross there that I think is occurring um, that will be sort of worrying for me. It's so interesting, I mean, because it's almost like these, these two um, intersecting but perhaps not compatible 
ideas within progressive politics producing like I, I love this idea of the kind of the perfect left-wing person um being you know mm. yeah you've got to be like middle class and educated but you you have to also represent some sort of oppression in some way and that kind of leads i uh, i guess the next thing i wanted to talk about and you know we've been talking fairly in uh, fairly generally um about political movements but you know this being the subject of the podcast uh to to link it to queer stuff more explicitly i feel like that's mm. uh where that's why queer issues figure so centrally in these debates and both of these articles as we as we met that queer issues quite prominently despite not being really about those things uh you know Queer issues like uh, marriage equality, like uh, trans rights, is, is becoming bigger and bigger a thing. Um, in in these discussions, I mean, uh, are are being seen as the the sort of um, uh, I don't know how, what would you call it, like the the kind of touchstone mm-hmm. uh, issues for the left. You know, the the, the kind of the big things that the, that we are talking about and, and debating about. Um, and I was kind of thinking a lot about why that is, like why why queer issues, and I think that it's because. And this is something I think we've we've touched on before, and and certainly you and I've spoken about before. I think uh, queer issues, unlike a lot of uh, other social issues, can look like they're being superficially engaged with and addressed without any actual radical transformation of society. So they end up being sort of um, safe subjects for these. Uh, for for mainstream left wing political movements, essentially, you can look like you're supporting uh, gay people or trans people or, or or other queer people, and not actually have to change very much. I mean, something like implementing, like legislating marriage equality uh, or or legis- or anti discrimination law, for example, they're not really kind of transformative uh, reforms. People can kind of the people in power can still kind of keep their power but look like they're uh, moving things forward where to make kind of um, poverty at the heart of these movements or something like that would actually require us to confront what is really broken about mainstream wing politics. Yeah, I actually think it goes well beyond that as well. So you mentioned that it uh, it allows people in political power to look like they're doing things something without actually doing very much. I suppose um, I mean queers as well. Queers you know? as well, yeah, absolutely. You know, not just... Um, yeah, straight people. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about it is the is goes back to this discussion of class that I'm going to keep bringing up today because I think it's so relevant. Um, but for me, it's not just about not uh, about uh, sort of trying to do something or you know doing something with, without actually changing much. But I think that there's a broader picture there about the incorporation of um, people into into a mainstream society uh, or into the mainstream approach of society. And so what you've got is queer people are very easy. Uh, it's a very easy thing to, to talk about. And it's the, re- the reason why it's such a touchstone at the moment is that we're seeing the incorporation of queers into upper middle class society. Uh, and that is a really valuable thing for a capitalist society. Uh, and I think marriage is a perfect example of that, where you, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, with, the, with the gay liberation movement, what you had was um, uh, queers really challenging our ideas of family and sex and all of that sort of stuff. Um, going into the 80s, there was a whole lot of fear of queer people due to the HIV AIDS um, 
uh, trauma that was going on and the crisis that was going on at that point of time and the reaction to that was very strong in terms of gay people as being too sexually promiscuous and causing this themselves and being a problem community. And what's happened in the 90s and noughties is that that has died off and uh, uh, that what you're seeing is queer people being incorporated into, into, into mainstream society. And marriage is the perfect example of that. So it's not just that when... That nothing you know that you can look like you're doing something without doing something it's actually that you can bring a whole new community one that used to be quite radical and one that used to be radicalized uh into uh, um and used to be a real trouble for mainstream society you can actually bring them into mainstream society and make it look like this is great progressive thing um and this all connects into this um sort of um, elite smug nature of left-wing politics and that you know it's it's about hey look you know you know this pure identity we've brought you all into society into into mainstream society uh, and you're now middle class you're out of the working classes and therefore you pose less of a challenge to our society because it is in class struggle that these challenges are actually real more real god that's so I mean that's so interesting because it, it's like I feel like it also just ties so tightly back into identity politics, mm. which becomes like then this really uh, effective tool for doing that. You know, if you can um, classify people or have them classify themselves, you kind of pick out these these characteristics um, that you can uh, reframe equality around. Then it uh, you know it, it it makes it kind of harder to think about things in in class terms if if you're saying that you know what matters is is race or is gender or is sexuality um, that that then becomes a really effective tool for carving off um, pieces of, of of society and and co opting them into this, um, this system. Yeah, it's the erasure of class from an analysis of left wing politics um, at, at the at the simplest. Um... Uh, you know, the simplest explanation of all of this stuff is an erasure of class from left-wing politics. An example I'd like to think of for, about that is, um, I, I might get this a little bit wrong, the details of this wrong, but I read a story um, from the UK um, a couple of, maybe about a month ago, which was related to their National Union of Students who have, you know, queer um, departments and they, uh, motion, there was a motion passed, I think, at the national level in the UK, which basically said, uh, it sort of removed um, a specific group, I think, um, within the queer department that was dedicated to gay men. So it was the the removal of the committee on on gay men or something around that. They must have had committees on people of different identities, I guess. Um, and what the argument was, and this is sort of the key crux of this, so I'm sorry if I got some of the details wrong, but what the argument was was that gay men are no longer oppressed in our society, um, so therefore do not deserve their own representation because because they've entered into the middle and upper classes and they don't, you know, and they have all of their rights. Now, to an extent, that's true. Um, there is a whole bunch of rights that have been given to gay men that still don't exist for um, some people, for trans people, or, for example, and, and women uh, and lesbian women who obviously still face a whole range of um, sexual discrimination. But what was really interesting to me was that it just completely ignored the element of class within any of that in that there is no discussion about that potential so there you know an, an example of this could be for you know that there could be in these groups there now there could be representation for someone like caitlin jenner who is extremely wealthy um high profile trans person but a poor um 
you know, person of colour, gay man would have no representation in this space anymore um, because gay men apparently as a group now have no problems. Um, it sort of takes away a whole bunch of those other potential inter intersections and particularly the intersection of class out of all of that out of all of that debate. And I think that that is becoming really prevalent within within left-wing politics. Mm. I mean, it also just kind of frames, you know, it goes, it goes to this idea of progress, like left-wing um politics as, as you know, well, I mean, we call, we call it progressive politics often as being towards a kind of agreed upon goal that is clearly, you know, to go to the kind of smugness stuff again, that is clearly what is best for everyone and we'll get there eventually once everyone's kind of educated enough um, mm. and, and sort of denies uh, any complexity, denies any possibility for things moving uh, in different directions or, or things getting harder for some people. Um, you know, I think about, you know, I work for a, a queer health organization, but it's primarily a, a HIV and gay men's health organization. And think about um, an experience like HIV, which is quite specific to um, men who have sex with men, so gay men, bi men, um, you know, and, and others. And that that is this kind of specific cultural and historical experience that is still had by gay men in a, a country like Australia that sort of doesn't... Um, you kind of can't frame that in terms of like uh, comparing equality or comparing gains in in rights uh, across different kind of relatively oppressed groups within queer cultures because it is this specific thing that only kind of applies to particular groups in particular ways and there's complexity within that but it's just such a that way of thinking is such a um, it's so blunt you know and, mm -hmm. and as as to be kind of useless beyond a certain point yeah and i guess it goes down to and you know we're going to keep connecting this back to uh, sort of both identity politics but also to uh, a rights-based approach to politics in that uh, i think this is what happens in is happening in a lot of um, progressive movements in that it's a, a focus of politics that is based around rights in terms of gaining equal access to to certain rights and to certain legislation and so uh, it's an approach of a, of, a, of a quality based on sort of I, I forget the the technical terms I think it's a version of negative equality but I might be wrong in which you know as long as we're all on the same playing field you know we all have the same legal rights then everything is kind of okay and and this is not just within queer movements I think you see it really predominantly in um, in the fem in feminism as well at the moment, you know, for example, around you know access to a whole range of services, but also you know focuses on um, queer people or women getting access to media. Or uh, there's been a lot of debate about media. I think in queer communities at the moment, you know, making sure that we have equal representation, equal representation in political parties, equal representation on boards, all of that sort of stuff. It's a very focused a rights-based approach, and that sort of ignores both history like you were talking about with the hiv aids example but it also ignores like the physical reality or the material reality people are facing it ignores things like poverty um you know it ignores things like uh whether you're working class or middle class or whether you own property or you can't own property which is something i've been thinking about a lot recently you know it ignores all of those things because as long as you have equal rights then you're fine uh and i think that that is um this connects to a lot of that sort of stuff mm. That's it for the main discussion today, but before we finish up, we wanted to return to last episode's topic for a few minutes. Uh, this is something we've been talking about doing more to give the podcast series more continuity from one episode to the next. Um, we'll try to keep these discussions to the end of the podcast in case you haven't listened to the episode that we're discussing.
Um, so in our last episode, we talked about um, the telecommunications company Telstra and how uh, they had sort of there were stories about them um, reversing their position on same-sex marriage to to no longer support same-sex marriage and to remove their sort of funding and stuff from the campaigns. About an hour after we recorded our last podcast, so it was great timing. Um, sort of Telstra backflipped on their backflip on marriage equality and decided that they would not only continue their support but would then um, uh, that they would continue their support but not only that they would they could continue to actively support um, marriage equality um, both Ben and I thought this was really interesting and had a bit of a chat about it afterwards and I think that for me uh, in many ways it highlighted exactly why uh, this we should be so careful about support from big corporate giants you know, people lauded this as a big win um, for, for, you know, a big win for the marriage equality movement. You know, we got them back, you know, we shamed them into into supporting us again. And, but I disagree. I think that what it highlighted was that you have, uh, the, Telstra, the big corporations follow their dollar, follow the dollar just, just like they always do. And where you had it as a situation in which Telstra um, sort of removed their support facing pressure from the Catholic Church, uh, facing major financial pressure from them, the, the, the sort of threat that the Catholic Church would remove huge contracts from, from the company. And it was clear to me that they tried to sort of remove their support from same-sex marriage in a really quiet kind of way. And what ha- happened was that when it leaked and when it came out publicly, the pressure they then felt, realized they sort of realised that they were going to lose more money um, from um, from the, the huge pressure from the from the queer community and from, from allies um, around this issue and so they made a self-interested decision it wasn't a win it was a self-interested interested decision in which they realized that they needed to um, end you know to, to put out the fire um, and that the only way to do that was to come out strongly in support of same-sex marriage again and while we may say hey that's still a win because you know you know we had consumer pressure I think what it highlights to me is that treating these sort of companies as big as moral agents who can provide moral support to a campaign is a really dangerous thing um, because if things turn against us at some point in the future or if you know conservatives put on more pressure on these issues which I think they're doing um, then you know it's it's likely that big companies will, will flip on us again you can't rely on them to support us um, because they're not there for our best interest they're there for their own Ben do you have any thoughts on that uh, no, I mean, you've pretty much summed it up. I think, you know, we, we sort of talked about the possibility of this happening, I think, even before it happened. And, uh, you know, it, it, it changes nothing. If anything, it it just reinforces everything that we talked about on the last podcast, you know, and I, I would have hoped um, that something like this happening would just really make it clear how little these decisions have to do with um, any sort of social good uh, and it was nice to see there was a little bit of kind of a ridicule of the whole thing, um, which, which I think is the appropriate response. Um, but mm. as, as you said, there were also the, the kind of, you know, this is a win for people power, blah, 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 which is, you know, yeah, yeah. Missing, missing the point. Yes, I agree. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, which you can find on queers.podomic.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Queers and leave us a review if you can. It does really help. In the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. And I'm at Simon Copland. Thanks and see you all next time. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 